Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Namihi nui and welcome to Our Changing World from RNZ National. Community restoration groups around the country are out and about, taking advantage of winter's damp soils to get native plants well established in the ground before summer. The Nature Space website says that there are nearly 400 such groups in New Zealand, and between them they've planted more than 1.7 million native plants in the last few years. That's a lot of plants. But many of them won't make it. That's where Stephen Hartley from Victoria University of Wellington comes in. Stephen and his students are restoration ecologists, and they want to help all those community groups by coming up with the best ways of re-establishing native forests and wetlands. As you can imagine, this is long-term research. It takes many years to find out which plants are thriving and which have died. It's been five years since I first visited one of Stephen's study sites, and I thought it was time to find out what they've learned so far and where they're going with the project. The Wairio wetlands are on the eastern shore of Lake Wairarapa and are part of a larger wetland restoration programme run by conservation group Ducks Unlimited. When we arrive, local farmer and wildfowl enthusiast Jim Law pops by to talk planting trees and forming partnerships. Initially, people perceived us as a bunch of greenies out here planting a few trees and having a happy time. But it's much, much more than that. And possibly to dispel that view that people had, we formed an alliance with Victoria University and allocated them one of the stages that we have, have created here. And it's essentially their scientific classroom. And hopefully some of the questions they're looking at, some of the answers they're getting might in future inform the best way to go about doing the planting? Yeah, absolutely. The the kind of overarching objective they have, and, and which we are very interested in, is to determine cost-effective ways for uh, wetland restoration. So I gather there's a new stage starting that involves mycorrhizal fungi, so what do you know about them? About a year or so ago, I'd never heard of the word, um, but and now I know a little I bit more. I don't think you're alone in that. <laughs> yes, that's very, very true. So mycorrhizal fungi are found in the soil. But what exactly are they and what do they do? The expert is Victoria University's Julie DeLip. Mycorrhizal fungi are a symbiosis. They're two organisms living together. So they're a plant root, that's the rhiza part, and the myco is the fungus part. They're a soil fungus that lives in symbiosis with a plant root. So it's a partnership that's going on in the soil. That's right. So it's based on the exchange of nutrients. So the plant makes sugars by photosynthesis. And that carbon in the sugar is the food for the fungus. So it feeds the sugars to the fungus in exchange for soil nutrients and water. So the fungus goes out into the soil and explores the soil volume. And it is really good at sucking up water and soil nutrients. And it gives them to the the plant so the plant can grow and photosynthesize more. 
So it's quite a complex thing that's going on under the surface of a forest that we don't really think about. That's right. So below-ground ecosystems are at least as complex as what we see above ground, and probably more so. More species, more interactions between a variety of organisms. I think that mycorrhizae are fascinating because they underpin interactions between plants. So if two plants live side by side, they communicate, they exchange resources through their mycorrhizal fungi. And mycorrhizal fungi, because of these many roles that they play in plant communities, are important in succession and in the continuity of forest ecosystems. So if a fungus is there, the seed of a kahikatea might germinate and and grow into a dominant tree, and that tree will feed carbon to that fungus and let it reproduce, which in the future will recruit more kahikatea seedlings. So they're kind of agents of what we call legacy as ecologists in ecosystems. And that idea of legacy in ecosystems is very much like the concept of whakapapa in human societies, the the kind of continuity of human lineages. And so I like to think of mycorrhizal fungi as a korero. They're the stories that link generations of people together. And as anyone who's been to, to papa or in any museum or site in New Zealand knows, without our stories, it's our society's kind of shrivel. They fall apart. They're the glue that holds the generations together. And mycorrhizal fungi are very much like stories for plant communities. Internationally, there's lots of excitement about the hidden world of mycorrhizae, and it's adding an interesting layer of complexity to the experiments out here at Wairio. We are interested in what's happening below ground, and the bigger picture is to what extent do other plants and other fungi facilitate the growth of the species that we're planting, and to what extent do they maybe compete? So we know the grasses are competitive with the trees. If we plant the nurse trees too densely or let them get too big, they might also compete with the other things. So it's about trying to find the optimal balance of uh, what combinations of species you plant and how quickly can you accelerate the successional process. Ecological restoration, when you're trying to go from an area that was probably dominated by kaikatea and other trees, was then drained and felled, was then used as rough grazing, so it's dominated by grass. We're now trying to put all that process into the reverse. So the drains have been blocked, it's now wetter again. Um, But how do we get trees established into this very thick grassy sward? What sequence do we have to do it in and can we make succession go faster than it would naturally? So Stephen is going to show me how they're testing the role mycorrhizal fungi play in growing small trees into a mighty forest. We're heading through the replanted area, and it's a great chance to see how those first experiments from five years ago are getting on. When I was last here, a lot of this was bare dirt, and the first little plants were just going into the ground. There's eight different species, and they all responded differently, and we had a variety of different pre-treatments, and that was the idea, was to see what is the best way to get good growth and survival in a restoration situation in a wetland. A lot of these are looking my height or even taller. Yes, yeah. There's quite a lot of variation across this paddock. Where we've come in is the driest end, and generally the growth was greatest at the dry end of the gradient. So a nice, healthy-looking cabbage tree. That's right. It's cabbage tree 123. So it's a science experiment, so everything's numbered. Yeah, so this paddock is just over five hectares, and we planted just over 2,000 trees in it. Every tree has got its own unique identity and we measure their height and survival on an annual basis. So we know how they've grown, which ones have died. 
they were planted in grids of roughly eight by eight and so when a tree wasn't there we knew that it had died and disappeared that's the hardest thing in monitoring sort of restoration projects is knowing how much was planted where and following up on it how many did you lose varied across the species after five years the kaikatea it's about 60 percent survival totara and pittosporum 50 percent and uh, Cosma robusta had the lowest survival at only 18%. So what were the treatments, the different treatments that you planted the plants into? Well, at the largest scale, we divided the area into 10 blocks, and each of those blocks was into two halves. Half the topsoil was scraped with a bulldozer, and the other half was left in the, sort of the grass that was already there that had grown up. There was a, some spot spraying of herbicide to just make a clear patch against the grass. Then within that, we had half of the trees had weed mats around them and half didn't. And did you find a difference in survival and the health and the size of the plants between the, all those different treatments? Yes, the scraping didn't make too much difference to survival in the sort of the longer term, but it has made a difference to the growth of the trees. So the trees in the non-scraped areas are taller on average than the trees where the topsoil had been scraped. So although they didn't have to compete with the grass, the topsoil may have more nutrients... Uh, the bulldozer may have compacted the soil a little bit. Um, and also, without any grass at all, they were a little bit more exposed to the wind in that first year or so. So what else did you have going on? Yeah, there were several factors kind of overlaid with each other. Another was the use of nurse trees. So the idea of a nurse tree is that it's a species that can establish quite well, grows a bit faster than others. So, for example, as nurse trees, we had manuka, Pittosporum tenufolium and a couple of species of Caprosma. So we've got three different combinations of plots. So do you get any sense at the moment how your, your key species, those things that you're really wanting, the kaikatea and the totara that you have planted, are they doing better with nurse species? And are any of the nurse species better than the others? In terms of growth, the manuka and the Pittosporum are putting on more growth. So in terms of bulk, they look like they're probably going to be better nurse species. And taking all nurse species as a whole, the kaikatea and the cabbage tree and the olaria grew better, it grew taller in the presence of nurse trees than in the absence. So you've decided to focus on the mycorrhizal fungi under the ground. How are you going to be doing that out here on the field? Well, it's quite clever, and that's down to my colleague, Dr Julie Delip. She's basically showed us this method where you plant a tree in a mesh bag, and the mesh is very fine, so the roots can't penetrate outwards, but the mycorrhizal fungi, their hyphae, the very thin threads that they have, can penetrate through the bag into the soil, into the root ball, and then they sort of latch onto the roots. And they essentially increase the surface area available to the roots, and there's transfer of sugars, usually from the plant towards the fungus, and water and nutrients from the fungal hyphae into the tree. So, Garth, this mesh bag experiment is yours? Uh, yeah, so I'll be looking after it while I do my masters out here. So what's the process? They're in normal pots at the moment. Um, so they're in normal pots at the moment. There's some that will be planted straight into the ground, just as a control, so to give us something to reference back to. And then we have some that are planted into some thin mesh bags. And so the fungi can go through the mesh bag, but the roots can't. And then, for another lot of plants, they'll be put into the mesh bag and then into one of these little wicker pots. And what that does is, when the pots are in the ground, every month or so we twist the pot 
about 90 degrees, and that'll snap the little mycorrhizal fungi that have gone out, and that'll prevent the plant from having any connection to any of the other plants in the area. So your hypothesis would be that the ones that you come and give a twist to every month and don't have good mycorrhizal fungi connections would do less well. Do less well, yeah. And so for this one, it has the pot and the mesh bag, so this one won't be connecting to any... This is going to be doing the twist. This will be doing the twist, yes. So I've heard mycorrhizal fungi described as a bit of a worldwide web in the soil, and so your experiment really is giving some of them ultra-fast broadband and some of them are going to be on (laughs) dial-up. That's a very good analogy. So we're not able to sort of completely stop them connecting into that web, but they'll be definitely on sort of a slow dial-up speed compared to the, the others. And the question really is how much does that ability to connect to the fungi of the soil facilitate growth and enhance survival? Ecology has focused a lot on competitive interactions, but actually facilitative interactions where one species aids another and there's often mutual benefit, they can be very important and they're particularly important in re-establishing a new vegetation community. So if I was a seed in a forest and I germinate in the forest, I can already tap into this great network that's already there, but that network's been broken out at Wairio because it's been grass for ages. Exactly, exactly. We don't know the extent of the damage um, because the grass also has mycorrhizal fungi. So we don't know if the fungi that are symbiotic with the grasses can facilitate the restoration of the Kahikatea swamp forest that we're trying to reestablish. That might be possible, but it's unlikely because often dominant trees have their own fungal partners and and kind of a complex, we call them late-stage fungi, these late-succession fungal communities that are associated with dominant plant species. So I suspect that the fungi that are at Wairio right now um, will need to change as we reintroduce the plants. And we're not sure if just planting the plants will, will be sufficient or if we're going to have to modify the soil to facilitate the arrival of the fungi as well. So at the moment you're experimenting to see whether the plants can make their own connections, whether those fungi can, I suppose, appear from somewhere. (laughs) Yeah. We're lucky in that soil holds the spores, the units of dispersal of the fungi, very well in most cases. So long um, periods of time? Yeah. The spores are it can go dormant and they become dry and they and they may still be there. They are they're also um they can be moved in water and sometimes even in wind, some of the smaller spores. So so the ecosystem should produce these spores. We shouldn't have to import soil or something. Although uh, I think um, proximity to, to intact forests is really important in terms of the timing of, of restoration projects. So there are a few mature trees there, so hopefully they might have some? That's right. So the first thing we did was try to get a sense of what's on the mature trees and how that compares to to a few pockets of remnant Kahikatea forest in the Wairarapa Valley, where where it, there should be an intact community. And so we're, right now we're using DNA technologies, we're sequencing those fungi to figure out how different that community is to what we're after, really, a mature community. Thanks to Julie DeLip, Stephen Hartley and master student Garth Fabro from the Centre for Biodiversity and Restoration Ecology at Victoria University. We also heard Jim Law from Ducks Unlimited. Thanks for listening to this Our Changing World podcast. You can stay in touch with us on Twitter at RNZ Science. Matewa. 
Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.